another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And you? Doing pretty good for a January day. Yeah, typical January day in Portland. Gray, a little bit damp. Yep. How we like it. It's Once you're through the holidays, there's nothing to keep your spirits up. It's just going to be months and months <laughs> good, of this. It's good beer drinking weather. That's true. That's, That's true. It's good. good time to... Pop yourself in a pub. Uh, maybe we should actually call this the Beer Anomics Podcast. Today. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. For reasons I'll be explained in a moment, but before we do, let me introduce my co-host. It's Jeff Allworth, of course, author of the Beer Bible from Workman Publishing and Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Books. And you can find him uh, blogging at Beervana and at the All About Beer magazine. And you are Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University, a uh, fellow, an international fellow, research fellow. Um, and you have a longtime uh, blogger at the Beeronomics blog, which is an interesting uh, segue here because you talk about the economics of beer have, and have done so for, for years. So I have. People always ask, especially reporters who contact me wondering what my interest in beer is. Uh, and what I tell them, um, which is true, is that uh, my interest in beer was entirely as a um, home brewer, craft beer enthusiast, uh, hobbyist. Um, and an economics professor looking for interesting examples of how to explain economic concepts. So um, I'm not actually a professional uh, beer-onomist, uh, <laughs> of which there actually seem to be, because now there's a beer-onomist conference and, uh, and so on. Um, so I don't study it in, in my research. I study other things like child labor, but, um, uh, but I enjoy uh, thinking about the economics of beer, and I sort of keep my eye on the beer industry. And I imagine if I were a student in your class and you gave an example of um, an economic principle and used beer as an example, I would be much more engaged than if you did child labor. <laughs> well, that's 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 the idea, although I try not to, to, to give all my examples about beer. Sure. It gets a little bit tiring, I imagine. Right. All right. Well, uh, today we are going to – we'll just jump right in. As you said, a segue. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, an economic subject, and Patrick is going to uh, – walk us through that. Um, the, uh, the question that many people have had for the last year or two is, is uh, craft brewing heating up too fast? Um, when yeah. we're starting to hear the dreaded B question, is there a bubble? So we're going to look, be looking at that a little bit. Yep. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the question, is there a craft beer bubble? That's the topic of uh, today's pod. And uh, I'll try to give a little context. I'll explain my point of view. Um, and um, uh, hopefully we'll uh, answer a few questions too. Yeah, many people have, have wondered about this, and we're going to solve it today, so that'll be nice. That's right. Yeah, the answer will be clear. Yeah. <laughs> then you can then you can move on to something else. Uh, all right, but first the news. Put that one to bed. <laughs> yes, that? we can put that one to bed. Yes, put that one to bed. All right. The news. The news. What's, what's new in the news? In fact, I don't now, even know this because I've, I didn't read this part, so go ahead. I know. You were busy preparing your other business. Yeah. Uh, there is some interesting stuff happening. Um, the first one is a national slash local news story. Um, the Craft Brewers Alliance, which is principally uh, the Widmer Brothers, uh, Red Hook, and Kona Brewing, although mm-hmm. there's a couple other players in there, um, announced last week or this week, sometime recently, um, that they will be brewing... Uh, some beers in the Rainier portfolio for Pabst at the Woodenville uh, plant mm-hmm. in Washington State. Um, and in that deal, uh, Pabst uh, has the option to buy the, the brewery outright. Ah. Um, and the, the Woodenville facility. The Woodenville facility, gotcha. right. Uh, and everybody's kind of excited in Washington State about that because it means that uh, venerable 
brand is coming back to Washington, so Rain, they're kind of cool. Rainier beer. So was it being brewed elsewhere? Uh, it was. Yeah, Pabst is not. Many people. But I mean, the Rainier brand never never died. The Rainier brand never died. No, it never died. All and, right. Uh, and and Pabst, that's which it. does not have a brewery, was contracting it with somebody, and I don't actually know. That's a, that's a, that's a brand close to my heart. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. As an undergraduate, I I might have tipped back a few. There are right. a few of us who who recall a when few that was. hundred Rainier bombers yeah. because it came in 16 ounce bottles so why wouldn't you go for the rainier yeah it was a big part of that city um you when you drive uh up from portland you're you on a, you're on interstate five that was kind of a straight shot and as you're dropping into the city you pass the old rainier brewery and it had the big old r which was an icon mm-hmm. iconic uh logo throughout pubs all across the pacific northwest and that's right and they had some pretty iconic uh ads too so if you they did if you haven't seen them look them up on youtube there yeah very cool uh, interestingly, as a part of that announcement, CBA also announced that they would be brewing the uh, Red Hook uh, brands here in Portland uh, in their in their yet again expanded uh, facility, which now can do 750,000 barrels, which makes that a pretty darn big brewery. Goodness gracious. Yeah. Uh, and um, they also announced that Kona, will, they'll be building a new plant on Hawaii, the island of Hawaii. Uh, to brew more Kona, and that will be a 100,000-barrel brewery. So nice. a, lot, a lot going on with CBA. Nice. I had a chance to visit the Kona brewery when I was there over the summer last year. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty nice place to drink beer. It is a pretty nice place to drink beer. They have this cool pub that it kind of feels like outdoor because there's palm fronds above you, but it's actually an outdoor pub. It's really cool. Uh, in other news, um, this is one that I, I think is for the beer nerds like me. Um, the Czechs have this weird system of of uh, categorizing their beer and uh, so if you go over there and you try to order a beer you you, you order it by both its uh, color is one one met one uh, axis mm-hmm. and then the other one is its strength so you mm-hmm. might order a Svetli which means pale Lejac which is a certain strength or by Chutney uh, Svetli mm-hmm. um, well they're changing some stuff um, two of the high uh, high alcohol uh, categories one was a uh, uh, I think it's Spezial. I'm not totally sure how to pronounce this. Mm-hmm. Czech speakers, please forgive me. Um, which is beer higher than 13 Plato. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things are on the Plato system. Uh, will now be called Silne Pivo. And there was a category that was for very strong beers, above 18 uh, degrees Plato, that they called Porter, which was just weird. Because <laughs> um, if you made an actual English porter that was, you know, a nice 12 Plato beer, which mm-hmm. might be what you do if you're doing a porter, you couldn't call it a porter. And if you were making a Doppelbach, you had to call it a porter. So they dumped that. Um, so Probably a good thing. Yeah. Everybody make note of that. When you go to check, quit ordering p- porters. That's right. Right. Ch- uh, ch- change your notes now. Yes. And the last one is I threw on here for you because I thought it was so fascinating. Excellent. Um, in the small village of Tadcaster in Yorkshire, yes, uh, Humphrey Smith, the patriarch of the, you have been there. Humphrey Smith, the patriarch of the uh, Samuel Smith Empire, uh-huh. uh, was in the news recently when he refused to rebuild a footbridge that connected uh, the two halves of the city that got washed away in recent floods. Ah, and they caused the town folk to get up in a huge furor over that. And it's not even totally clear what his objections were. He has, the Smith family owns a lot of property in uh, Tadcaster, and they exercise a lot of control. A big, over, a big chunk of the village, yeah. Yeah, a big chunk of the village. They exercise a lot of control over how things develop and, and what people do. And there's been kind of a uh, interesting relationship there. And when they were 
thinking of building in the most logical place, which would ha have touched part of his property. He was he he balked, and then he wanted to have control over design and a bunch well, of other things. And well, so the one the, the one thing I can say, having visited his brewery, is that uh, he's certainly a uh, interesting fellow. Yeah, the brewery itself is a is a crazy throwback that you that defies all business logic, but is clearly based on his quirky personal preferences. So I imagine that that uh, that follows through other parts of, of life as well. The other interesting thing about Tadcaster, though, is that uh, you have the little, tiny, quaint uh, Victorian-era brewery that hasn't changed much um, for Samuel Smith, and then you have the massive, modern John Smith brewery that towers over it and looms out in the distance. Maybe this bridge, actually, maybe the bridge is between the two, and he doesn't want people going from one to <laughs> keep the John Smith people out. Uh, so apparently some famous breakup in the family led to two separate breweries, and, and, the, and the chasm has never been... Um, been bridged. Yeah, and until recently, uh, or at least it would, when we were there, they were most of the uh, uh, Newcastle Brown that was made in England was made at that John Smith. At that brewery. John Smith brewery, yeah. So I don't know if it still is, but anyway, weird facts that you can learn on this podcast and many other places. But but, <laughs> but you heard it here too. If you, if you have internet and Google, but right, but don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thank you for the news roundup. Yes, let's get into uh, talking about this this bubble story. Let's get right to the uh, the heart of the matter. Yeah, I've had maybe three, four reporters in the last six to twelve months contact me wanting to know what I thought. Um, uh, and there's been a number, and there's been quite a number of articles written in lots of different places. I did a Google search right before this um, to, to and just put in craft beer bubble, um, and yeah. lots of things came up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, so there's a lot of wrinkles with this. Um, mm -hmm. Craft beer is clearly growing a great deal right now. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that, that seems to be one prerequisite for a bubble. So I think yep. a lot of people are looking at that. And there's a lot of breweries opening up. So that looks also like that I think is giving them a lot of concern. Mm -hmm. Something like 600 breweries opened up last year. Yeah. Uh, so these are, these are precursors that are making people wonder about a bubble. Why don't you, you're an economist. Uh, we use this word bubble as uh, I think imprecisely to mean um, a lot of a lot of activity. I think people. I, I'm not sure that everybody's using it the same way. Yeah. So bubble is a let's let's yeah let's get let's get down into the weeds to begin with, and then we'll dig ourselves out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's talk about the lexicon of bubble because bubble is a really interesting concept in economics. In fact, it's quite a controversial concept in economics. Uh, Probably the, a standard definition in economics of bubble, if there is one, would be something along the lines of an asset whose price has become uh, detached from the intrinsic value that it represents. So the price has become inflated um, and no longer represents, is no longer representative of its real value. But for any students that's taken an economics class, you say, but wait a minute, uh, I was taught that value is all market-driven. So exactly. the, price, the, the price is, uh, is the is the value of a good because that's based on the relative supply and demand of the good, and that's what we teach. Right. Uh, in fact, in, in, and you may have um, encountered things like the labor theory of value, studying Karl Marx, and other ways that people have tried to suggest that there is some kind of inherent value in an asset, and economists are quite uh, quick to say, no, 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 there's nothing inherent. It's all about relative supply and demand. So a bubble is quite controversial. Can you really have a price that doesn't represent uh, the value of, of the asset? Um, the way that I view it is it's more uh, of an example of a market failure. 
So let's take the, the, the reason I think that the bubble term is being used so often is because it became very popularized by the housing market bubble. Right. And if there has been a bubble, this may be the thing that's the most like, and, and by the way, when I say it's controversial, there's lots of economists who, who still reject the idea of bubbles entirely. Um, I that's interesting. It seems, uh, we'll come back. Well, here's why. It's, a, it's more of a sort of a, a little bit of a semantic argument because uh, you can have a market failure in which people don't know enough about the true value of the asset. And I would argue that this is largely what caused the housing market bubble. There were these mortgage-backed securities that uh, were very complicated, were based on mortgages that were being written um, uh, or very poorly uh, underwritten, um, very sketchy uh, borrowers were, uh, were, begin were, were being given loans. And so there's a lot of investment in assets that people didn't understand, that uh, they placed value on them based on the historic performance of mortgages, but they didn't understand that the current mortgages that were being written weren't of the same quality. Um, and so in this case, you could argue that it's not so much of a bubble, but just an information failure. And we have all these conditions to, for efficient markets, and that's the main. That's one of the main ones: is that you need to understand the val your own valuation of in this uh, of of uh, the stuff you buy. In this case, you need to understand the true value of the asset or the true underlying value of the asset. Okay. So, so let me ask a question yeah. here. Uh, it seems like you know a bubble. You can identify a bubble. You, you raise a kind of philosophical point. You can identify a bubble when it bursts. It seems like that's how you you can tell. And you can look at the even if you look at the chart. You know, you you, you see the the rapid rise. Yeah. If the prices always stay high, there's no bubble because it doesn't describe the way the graph goes when it collapses. Then you can see that bubble on the graph. It seems like that's what the bubble is. That's it's, right. It's almost and, and this was a big topic of, of the housing market as well. And people mentioned this in terms of Alan Greenspan, his uh, optimism about the market and uh, refusal to sort of try and slow it down um, because it's really hard to identify a bubble when you're in it. Right. Uh, the other thing I want to say about the housing market though, because I think this is where we're using the term bubble in the craft brewing is that there are a lot of, there are a lot of other sort of ancillary things that happened, but the main thing that happened in, in the housing market is there was a lot of speculative building. So a lot of spec houses, a lot of new neighborhoods being created. Suddenly the bubble bursts and the bubble in my, in, in my view is, was purely uh, an asset market, uh, a bubble. So these these uh, uh, mortgage-backed securities, uh, that market suddenly crashed. the The effect of that was that all of this building that was going on in the housing market uh, suddenly, um, uh, the building that was going on based on this expectation that you'd have right. ever more demand, uh, the demand quickly dried up. Mortgages were no longer being given. Uh, people who are buying houses and in, in hoping in hopes of flipping them quickly uh, or leaving the market, you know, these quick investors. So all of a sudden you had all of these uh, headline stories about these um, developments that were half-built and being abandoned, these half-built houses that were being abandoned, um, all these houses on the market that were not finding sellers. It seems like there's a good analog with, with the brewing industry. The people, it seems like what when people talk about a brewery, uh, a, a beer bubble, they're looking at the, the breweries being built, which looks a lot like houses being built, and exactly. they're wondering if uh, um, at a certain point the demand is not going to keep pace with the amount of breweries that are being built, and yeah. then you're going to have all these breweries that are going to go out of business. Yeah, that so that's I, I think that's exactly right, and that's why I think the term bubble is being used because they're thinking about this housing market. But I actually don't think the houses themselves were the bubble. It was the assets behind the houses that were the bubble. So, okay. um, uh, so this is my, basically my argument that we're sort of abusing the term. Um, there are booms and busts in business, and you might invest uh, 
based on the belief that demand will continue to grow or that there'll be demand in the future for what your um, for what your product is, and you might get it wrong. And in that case, that's uh, that to me is not a bubble. That's just invest you know speculative investment gone wrong. Uh, a bubble is something pretty extraordinary. So um, uh, we can call it a bubble. I don't really. Uh, want to defend or 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 uh, try to slay the term but really what i think people are, are wondering is are we headed toward a craft beer bust right is there is there going to be a, a bloodletting in the market or if if you don't like a bubble we could say boom and then if, and booms lead to busts so, yeah. yeah so i do think there's a craft uh, craft beer boom uh i don't uh, necessarily see a bust coming and we'll and we'll talk about uh, about why, um, but I do think that there'll be um, lots of aspects of a mature market that might not be the same as this rapidly expanding one that we're seeing right now. All so, right. so let's let's so let's turn to the to the question at hand. Um, there are a couple, by the way, of other sort of big headline news stories that uh, evoke bubbles as well. For example, the 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 purchase of uh, Ballast Point. Uh, for the headline number of a billion dollars, who knows what? Right. Who knows what really is is going on there? Right. Um, and there is a whole bunch of new capital flowing into craft beer that wasn't before. So I think private investors now, equity uh, venture capital and um, equity investors are looking at craft beer now that weren't before. Um, and so that's another aspect of a bubble that people that that or aspect that people associate with a bubble is all this sort of new money potentially flowing in. And yeah, it could be that. The value of existing breweries, for example, gets inflated through bidding wars, and um, but I don't think we're anywhere close to that yet. Mm-hmm. So let's let so so let's sort of dig into the dig into the uh, statistics and think about what the key metrics are. Uh, in my view, how to analyze the market performance and, and what we're going to see in in the future. Okay. So. I assume that we're going to talk about number of breweries. That's the best metric, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> so this, oh, it's not. So this is actually my this is actually my 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 first lesson in, in, in thinking about the market is there's a lot of focus on supply. So uh, people yeah. are saying, oh, all these new breweries that are being opened. That's crazy. How can there be so many new breweries? Um, the first thing I think you need to look at is what's happening on the demand side. And I've talked about this a lot. I think that the demand for craft beer has grown uh, remarkably. Uh, shows no signs of slowing down. In fact. You could even argue that it's speeding up. It's even gaining speed, um, and is uh, really transforming the beer market. Um, that craft beer is is getting a ever larger share of the overall beer market. That people are sort of discovering craft beer, and um, and that's creating this increase in demand. So, in other words, I don't think there's uh, a large swell in the number of beer drinkers, but it's the number of drinkers who are starting to prefer craft beer right. over regular beer. Yeah, in fact, um, the market has been pretty much flat for 20 years, I think, about 200 million, roughly 200 million barrels in America. But Yeah, I can give you a – so in 2014, just to give you a, a taste of what we're talking about, uh, the growth in sales by volume of craft beer uh, – and this is, by the way, when I talk about craft beer, um, these stats are from the Brewers Association, so it's their definition of craft beer. Right, so, so it may be not quite what – may, may under, actually underrepresent the amount of – that's right, because we're not beer. talking about, for example, the Craft Brewers Alliance or... Or, uh, or Blue Moon, uh, which is most most non-beer people would consider craft beer. Mm-hmm. It's wit beer, so yeah. Right. So craft beer, that their, uh, their definition of craft beer grew uh, 17.6% in 2014 alone. That's uh, uh, compared to the overall beer sales, which are up by half a percent. So basically, overall beer sales are flat, but mm-hmm. craft beer is digging ever 
more deeply into the overall beer sales. Um, if you want to talk about uh, dollar figures, um, it's an almost $20 billion industry currently, craft beer, as opposed to a $100 billion overall beer industry. And as we talked about prior to the pod, that has to do with the fact that uh, craft beer tends to be at a higher price point than um, than the macro brews. And so, but that's a, an amazing statistic, and it I think helps illuminate why uh, some of these bigger breweries are looking at it. Once you once you're at twenty percent of the entire market, that's that's not insignificant. You're not talking about a yep. a fractional piece here. That's yeah, twenty percent. But twenty percent of the re- all the revenue share is now craft beer. Yeah. By volume, it's only eleven percent. So that gives you the idea of how much that sort of price premium, and it's awfully attractive right. to current brewers <laughs> and to investors. And and then just give you to a, a nice sort of uh, uh, headline stat here. Uh, we looked up the the volume in 2005 and compared it to the volume in 2014. And well, in 2005, there was 6.3 million uh, barrels of craft beer. And in 2014, it's 22.2 million. So that's about a 250% growth since 2005. Right. In 10 years. And this is pretty interesting because I think people like us who've been drinking craft beer for a long time have mm-hmm. thought of craft beer as being pretty well established for a long time. But um, uh, at, th- at, at, uh, uh, six million barrels. That's like three percent of the entire market. It, it wasn't. It, it it was a real niche. Thing. That's right. It's still even, very much in its infancy. Yeah. Just and we could still be ago. quite uh, quite young in terms of the overall growth profile. And so there's a lot of speculative investment going on right now. There's a lot of bets on craft beer. But if you look at the stats, those bets seem to be well founded. This is not a bubble in the sense of making crazy investments potentially. Uh, again, a billion dollars for Palace Point, maybe, but, right. uh, but we really don't know the, the aspects there. Um, but this is an industry that's growing quite rapidly, um, that has a price premium over regular beer. And so it's not surprising to me that uh, capital is looking for productive outlets, that this would be something that would be attractive. Now, here's a question. Um, uh, in any given product category, mm-hmm. there are are products that are gimmicks and they sell, they, they show a big spike in, in, in sales. And then after a certain point they collapse and they go away They're, It's a, it's a product category that, that didn't, that didn't, uh, you know, it's not very successful. Right. Um, in looking at these numbers, do you think that craft beer is no longer in that category? Does it look like it's a, a real and lasting component of the, of the overall beer market? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think you can, uh, you can look at these figures and think that craft beer is, uh, the latest fad and going away. Um, these these growth stats have been going on for uh, a decade. And you even if you go back to the to the very beginnings of the craft beer, the early 90s, even late 80s, I mean, the, the growth profile has been amazing. And, and we're talking about a generation now right. um, in which craft beer has uh, exists. And by the way, just to give you an anecdote, <laughs> because, you know, uh, why, <laughs> why look at data when you've got anecdotes? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that... that uh, surprised me the most, what, you know, because I do use beer as uh, as examples when I teach uh, economics, um, is how much uh, current college age students, so 19 to 22 year old students, yeah. uh, identify beer as craft beer. Now you still, you know, if you go by on a Sunday morning <laughs> in the front of a cra- uh, front of a frat house, uh, you'll still see plenty of you know boxes, empty boxes of hams and things like that. The cheap beer is still uh, has its purpose, I suppose. Right. But they're all quite familiar and often quite knowledgeable about craft beer. Uh-huh. So I think there are, that, I think that that's another ex- that that's an anecdote, but it but it it um it shows that 
the new generation for the new generation craft beer is not sort of necessarily a fad or something uh out there um on the fringe but it is very much part of what they identify as beer there's this malcolm gladwell wrote a book called the tipping point there's mm-hmm. this concept of a tipping point where a thing becomes established mm-hmm. like there's an invisible line and once you go across that you're 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 established yeah uh is has craft beer crossed the tipping point is the tipping point in is it are we right at the tipping point is it just in the future do you, can you have a sense of of um you know are we are we headed to a place where craft beer is is going to occupy 50% of the market and so we're not at the tipping point yet or is it you know talk talk about that idea yeah where where the i mean to start with your last question first where where craft beer where the natural ending place for craft beer is is uh is an interesting question that I really don't have the answer to where it all stops. Um, It's interesting. If you did, we should start a consultancy. I should. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, no. See, I actually, I have one, but it's only for the paying customers. So (laughs) I don't give that stuff away for free. No, you could, you could charge a lot of money if you knew how many, where this Uh, is all going. And this is a question that we can sort of get into as we go along. But one of the interesting, one of the things I, I've harped on a lot and I will continue to harp on a lot because I think it's the most interesting economic force in all of, beer is the, the 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 economies of scale right um and there's nothing there's no reason why uh budweiser um couldn't have brewed a uh what we might identify as craft beer or a, a, a modern ipa they certainly can and they could do it more cheaply because of their scale and what I think is interesting is what's going to happen to these big regional breweries as they get bigger and bigger and bigger and start uh, uh, to become um, quite massive on you know rel- on a relative craft beer scale, uh, uh, are those beers going to become sort of the new normal? Are they going to become the new buds, the new Millers, the new? Right. That's what's fascinating to me. I have no answer to this question, but but that's where maybe that's like a true tipping point. Yeah. As uh, when suddenly it's like Sierra Nevada Pale is now your you know sort of. <laughs> The, the the beer that you see on the lawn in front of the uh, of the frat house, right? Um, where it becomes so big and they they can they can produce it at such a low cost um, that it really becomes just sort of your everyday beer and no longer is a German style pilsner um, uh, associated with sort of is just the standard generic beer anymore, right? That's, that, that's very interesting. Uh, who knows? Who knows with that? But what I'll say is that I think we've definitely passed the tipping point in terms of whether craft beer is here to stay. I think it's definitely definitely here to stay. I think there was a tipping point, uh, and I was going to get to this a little bit later, but um, one of the things that has happened in the evolution of craft beer is in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, there was sort of a bloodletting of... of uh, yes, this this looms huge over the, the psychology of the industry. Yeah, um, and maybe you can, you can talk about it uh, a little more because you were more involved in it um, back then than I was, and there was definitely some local some local examples of, of breweries that failed. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of investment, a lot of, a lot of new capacity, a lot of new breweries that came up and, um, there were some notable, uh, failures. And one of the things that, um, I read as I was, uh, doing my research for this pod was a quote by some brewer. And I forget now, um, off the top of my hand, top of my head who it was. Uh, but, um, I'm looking at my at my notes here. Um, Matt Cohen, that's who it was, owner and brewmaster of Fiddlehead Brewing. Uh, he 
he had a quote, and here it is. Um, I've had I've had plenty of bad beer out there, he says. I've sampled plenty of startup breweries, and the beer is subpar. And this is what we saw in the early 2000s. A lot of people got into it, and there was a lot of beer on the shelf, but a lot of it wasn't good. And I think actually in the late... Uh, he's talking about the early 2000s. I think in the late 1990s, you could say the same thing. There were a lot of sort of homebrewers gone pro, a lot of people who got into the industry who didn't have a lot of experience. Yeah, this is totally true. Um, and so there was a, a lot of um, pretty subpar beer, a lot of uh, a big variation in quality. What I think we have, a, t- a tipping point that I think we have passed now, is that there's enough established craft beer uh, breweries out there that most of the new people... Um, and this is purely speculative. Um, it seems to me, it's certainly around here, that a lot of these new breweries are being uh, started by people with some kind of experience who've worked in a brewery before, who um, who have on-the-job training, who kind of understand how to brew. Um, there's also, I think, more interest. Oregon State has definitely the interest in their brewing program has gone up. So there's more people being trained uh, at academic institutions as well. So I think there's just a whole lot more human capital um, that's going into these new breweries than than um, before, a whole much more experience. And so I think that a lot of these new breweries that that uh, that open up certainly around here um, uh, uh, hit the market with exceptional beer and well-run places uh, and well-thought-out business plans. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I think there's actually two pieces to this. Uh, <laughs> and maybe we can we have some beers here in front of us. We should drink one of these while I... Uh, oh yeah, I mentioned some of this. <laughs> we should forget that part. Yeah, that's, that's the best <laughs> that's part. That's the reason we do the pod. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the uh, one of the first beers we have here is uh, Anchor Steam, which is kind of um, the either the uh, uh, prehistory or the the start of, of the modern history of American brewing. Uh, when Fritz Maytag bought the Anchor Brewery, it was making crap beer, and and he figured out how to make it properly. Mm-hmm. Made it out of all grain. Uh, this is early '80s, right? No, this is 19, 1965. 1965, okay. Yeah, he bought the Anchor Brewery. I know, it's an amazing thing. That's why it's kind of hard to include it in there because it was 15 years before, right. or nearly 15 years before other people started making beer. Uh, and I think what's interesting, I'll let you open that while I... Yeah, we were talking about what beers to what beers to sample to, to sort of go along with a pod, and I thought, well, let's think about doing a sort of a little uh, history of craft beer. This, by the way, was the very first... Uh, what I would describe craft beer that I ever had. Yeah, I, Mike Steam. and I think I, I am in, I am in the camp that this is definitely the first craft beer. Uh, it's the first uh, kind of expression of American brewing that led to the ale breweries that we saw later in the in the uh, next couple of decades. And those guys all made the, a trip down to San Francisco to talk to Fritz because he'd already figured some of this stuff out. So he was really important as far as that goes. But this is one of the interesting things. You're dealing with um, when when uh, when all these craft breweries started, not only did they not know how to brew beer, but Americans didn't know what the beer was supposed to taste like. Right. And one of the big things that's happened recently is a lot of these young guys that are starting breweries now and women uh, are were raised with good beer. They right. they never had to learn what good beer is. Very good point. Yeah. So you have not only you had not only home brewers trying to make beer, but you had home brewers trying to make beer that they'd never tasted before. Right. They they were trying to make a porter, and they didn't know what a porter tasted like. Yep. And um, that's you know that there was a, every there was just ignorance everywhere in the early days, and it took a long time for people to come out of that, and that's why it grew so. It looked like it was growing fast when you looked at year over year 
uh, growth, but um, the absolute numbers were just tiny for so long. Yeah, yeah. Boy, that's that's so good. <laughs> that's one of the things about about sort of a derived demand or 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 uh, this increasing demand for craft beer. Learning what craft beer is like. I mean, I distinctly remember the first time I had it, thinking it was just unbelievably strong flavor. You know, like yeah, almost intense. If you if you haven't had one recently, I'm I, I have these infrequently enough that every time I pour one out, I'm surprised at how dark it is. Mm-hmm. I always expect it to be fairly pale. That's funny I, because I'm always surprised by how light it is. Oh, that's my first experience. So I <laughs> felt like it must be the dark, dark, you know, dank. Yeah. So it's a nice kind of copper color, and uh, it has uh, that really full. It's got a lot of residual sugars, so it's got a really full kind of palate that would must have been shocking to people used to uh, Pilsner style. Yep, shocking me. Yeah. And uh, quite a bit of hops. I mean, by modern palates, not so many hops, mm-hmm. but um, you know, quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of flavor. Um, so what 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 about the steam, the steam beer? Well, explain what steam beer is and what and what that does to the flavor. Steam beer is uh, a, a, an old. It's a it's a crude kind of brewing uh, that the that got started when all the the miners and all the people that were sporting the miners got to San Francisco. Uh, they couldn't properly uh, make lager beer there. Mm-hmm. They didn't have uh, ice, and they didn't have uh, the time to lager beer because people were drinking it so fast. Right. So they the steam the steam is a little bit uh, nobody nobody knows the exact reason they call it steam. Um, the Anchor Brewery tells the story that uh, they used to cool the beer in cool ships on the brewer on the top of the brewery, and ah. so it would steam. Okay, and uh, that's that's one theory. Another theory is that uh, it was um, it had to do with uh, I think it had to do with the uh, a carbonation thing. I can't remember all the all the different. Right. So m- most of them are apocryphal, of course. But the but the way that they made it was they made it with lager yeast, but they they didn't have they couldn't lager it, so they were uh, fermenting it pretty warm. Right. So it gets a fruitiness um, that mm. that you wouldn't normally expect. Um, okay. I think when you read uh, accounts of this beer from 100 plus years ago, it was a fairly rough beer. It was a frontier beer. It was quick yeah. and dirty beer, like so much that was happening in San Francisco at the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. It was, uh, and before, it was, it was, uh, you know, not made to be uh, super elegant and delightful. It was made to be to get miners drunk fast. Yeah. <laughs> well, if we're going to weave this beer into the narrative of the growth of craft beer. And in San Francisco, there were like, there were like 30 of these guys, 30 breweries making steam beer. So, oh, is that right? Yeah. It was a, a really big thing. It was a great San Francisco story. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, but yeah, if we're going to weave this into the history of craft beer, it's, you know, relative to what was available at the time, mainly pale lagers. It's, it's darker. It's, much more flavorful. Yep. It's got, as you say, it's got a lot of sort of fruity esters. It's 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 a bit definitely more malty. Mm-hmm. A little bit of hops, but not not really uh, very strong hop. Although I can now taste residual bitterness on my on my tongue. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it, that's right. It, it does not have that modern sense of of hoppiness, which it, means flavor and aroma, but more but the old sense. Yeah, it's got bitterness. a little snap. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, so that was the that was our sort of first step. So. Uh, when Fritz Maytag bought it in the 60s now, I was way off. Yeah. Uh, he started brewing this beer way back then, or, or originally? He, well, he so it was a it was an extant brewery. The Anchor Brewery Company yep. goes back for right. like 100 years. And uh, it was almost out of business. In fact, um, they were they were going out of business. Yeah. And he decided, yeah, he is, as many people know, from the, the Maytag uh, 
appliance company. Mm-hmm. So he had, so he had some, some means mm-hmm. and he decided to buy it. And uh, it's pretty interesting when you read the, the stories about what he did next because um, it had all this old obsolete equipment and it was making apparently pretty putrid beer. Right. This is the reason it was going out of business. It was all infected and gross and, and only like old timers who came by the brewery were <laughs> drinking it. Um, so he had to figure out how to make good beer and he was a... Uh, They're yeah. the ones, by the way, he said, why did you mess up my beer? <laughs> it was so good. No, it sucked. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the eight guys. Uh, <laughs> and so he was. He he would go and talk to the the titans of the brewing industry and say how do you brew how do i make this company go and and um it was such a quixotic uh endeavor that he, they were actually fairly helpful and he, he got help he went to the master brewers association of america and, and talked to brewers there and mm-hmm. they kind of gave him some advice and and so he rebuilt the brewery from the ground up and got new equipment and decided how to you know properly brew the beer and and yeah. rebuilt the brewery so who know who knows how influential this particular beer was uh, but in the in the legend, in the legend, <laughs> this was uh, one of the archetypal beers that sort of, I don't know, launched a thousand craft beer breweries. And <laughs> yeah, I think you know, you, you look at a guy who's making beer at a small scale, and that's probably the most important part of the whole story. It's yeah. flavorful, fl- flavorful beer, but it's also at a small scale. So I think it allowed other people to say, well, maybe it's possible not to make, not you know, I don't have to make uh, beer by uh, the the million barrel. Uh, yeah, good standard. point. So it's not just the style inspiration, but just the inspiration of a of running a small brewery. Yeah, it can be profitable. So let me get to the next the next what I think key metric. I talked about focusing on demand, not supply, and how much craft beer has grown. Um, the demand for craft beer is clearly growing. It's growing. Uh, uh, it's it's a growing segment of the overall beer demand, which isn't growing. In mm-hmm. other words. Uh, it's people switching or, or a generational change, as I would argue, from uh, the macro loggers into uh, craft beers. Craft beers cannibalizing from the macro. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a trend we can talk about, how, you know, how much to worry about overall beer sales. But I think one of the things that craft beer does is kind of reinvigorate the whole segment. Um, so we know that distilled spirits are... Um, <laughs> Are carving out big niches in um, in sort of tr- other traditional beer markets and stuff, but uh, but I think craft beer is sort of a way, almost a, a way that beer is fighting back, that's creating um, a, a new demand, new buzz and stuff. Right. So the second thing that I want to talk about, and this is what, um, uh, and I'm going to basically steal entirely from um, the uh, the Brewers Association economist Bart Watson. Um, he really focuses on. And I think he's absolutely correct about about this, which is to focus on um, not the number of new breweries. But brewing capacity, um, and so he's have to estimate. It's a pretty rough estimate because the numbers aren't are self-reported, and it's uh, it's not always up to date. And there's there's so many new breweries going on. But right. his estimate right now, or at least in 2014, is that production in craft beer is about 64% of capacity. So on the face of it, you might say, well, that's a whole bunch of excess capacity. So let's define our terms. When you say 64% of capacity, what do you mean? So if you have uh, a uh, uh, help me out here, 10,000 barrel brewery, uh, you might be brewing 6,400 barrels. Uh, 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 so you're using, you're utilizing only uh, not the full capacity of a brewery. Um, in other words, you could brew more beer on the same equipment. Okay. Does that, does that help? <laughs> does that so 64% of the entire amount of barrel, if, if all the craft breweries in the country were brewing at full capacity, they could produce 20, whatever, more percent. Yeah, 36 but 36, there you go. Yes, that's the idea. Okay. So, so the idea 
potentially is, oh, well, there's all this excess capacity. That means people are uh, investing in and um, creating breweries that um, are going to be underutilized. Now, do we know if that's a lot? Like, how do we know what the number is? Uh-huh. So, so that's that's what he that's how he he drills. The, I hate these terms. Drill down, dig deep, deep dive. <laughs> well, let's go. Let's do a deep dive. Uh, Does he have a hot take? I hate that. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, here's the hot take. Uh, so um, here's how he interprets the numbers, and I and, and as as you can tell, I buy it. So. He says it's 64% of capacity, um, but remember, a lot of this is speculation. We know that it's growing. Uh, a lot of these new breweries quickly expand, uh, right. um, and a lot of it's expansion of existing breweries as well. So they're seeing increased demand, and they're trying to respond to it. So he says, look, production now is greater than capacity was in 2012, and that capacity has roughly stayed the same, that the ratio of – so okay. that 64% has been roughly stable over uh, the last few years. And so if you think about it, just over, just over a three-year period, all of the excess capacity essentially was scooped up. In other words, if no more capacity had been, uh, had been built after 2012, we'd be completely full right now or, right. or at, at capacity right now. And most brewers probably you know, would like to be something close to capacity but would always like to have that room. They'd always hope, hope that they can keep growing. Of course. Uh, the ratio is not going up. I think I mentioned that. Um, and if the... If if you project a growth rate of 16%, remember I just told you that um, last year it was uh, almost 18%. So if you project a growth rate of uh, 16%, it uses up all of the current capacity in three years again. So this is an interesting thing you've introduced mm-hmm. uh, when we're talking about a boom. Um, right now, there's a lot of everybody's got assumptions about where the market is headed, and you make business decisions business decisions based on your assumptions. Yep. So if the market is growing at 15% growth annual growth, which is a crazy high amount, right? Like, mm-hmm. like other industries are not growing at 15%. No. Um, then you make certain decisions. But if you think in three years, uh, it sales are going to go flat or decline, or yep. you'll make different decisions. Right. So this is one of those those things that we can't. There's a lot. There's, this is the speculative. It goes. It goes element. back to your point: is how do you know if you're in a bubble uh, until it bursts? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is exactly right. You're making these uh, decisions based on um, what I would say is good data about the growth trends and expectations about future growth that um, I argue makes sense. Now it could be ex post that we find out that you know this was it. This was the last year of right. of the an increase in demand in craft beer, and suddenly it stops. I don't see. It's hard, very hard for me to tell stories where, in, in which that is true. But if that were true, then you'd say, okay, so people overinvested. I still wouldn't call it a bubble. I would call it smart, you know, re- rational investments that happen with full information. They just got it wrong. You can't, you can't predict the, the, the future. The one thing that's just interesting, by the way, just before, because I see that you want to interject something here, is that a lot of this excess capacity yeah. is kind of where you'd expect. It's in the smaller breweries. Uh-huh. So it's in these new breweries that are starting up. You don't want to handcuff yourself by making too small a oh this is really important too small a brew house and suddenly you know there's demand for your beer so yes I think people are looking at these trends and they're and they're investing in a in a fair amount of capacity expecting that they will grow into it this this relates to what I was going to interject uh, in the in the 90s what we saw when we had the great what people almost inevitably refer to as the great shakeout mm-hmm. is a bunch of breweries that invested in large uh, facilities right at the moment that the market collapsed yeah or and it didn't actually collapse i think it just it just flattened out yeah and there were breweries and we saw it here in oregon there were breweries uh like full sale that had that expanded to a two hundred fifty thousand dollar uh brewery out at, at hood river right at that ha- as that happened right and they you know in order to pay for that 
huge, beautiful new plant, they needed to have a certain level of capacity. And then when the growth stops, they can be left holding the bag. Yep. Yep. Um, Red, uh, Red Hook up in Seattle had just built a new brewery in New Hampshire. And so breweries were making these big gambles mm-hmm. uh, when, the, when the market fell out. So when you say that the most, most of that excess capacity is within the smaller breweries, it seems like it's much more stable. It's less likely to have a shakeout because in the 90s, that excess capacity was with the big breweries who were carrying massive mortgages on plants they couldn't keep uh, worrying anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think there wasn't, I mean, there wasn't just the market just wasn't as mature. There wasn't so many different breweries. Uh, the early movers had grown pretty big pretty quickly, mm-hmm. uh, and so they are left, yeah, in this this fairly leveraged position that left them a little more precarious. I think now the market is such that. Uh, demand is growing so fast that you can um, you can invest in excess capacity pretty soon. Most most successful brewers are finding that capacity used up quickly, and then they invest in more capacity, and so it's more of a gradual. Yeah. I also think I don't know too much um, about this side, but I think there's it's also easier now. There's more uh, um, local brewing equipment being being uh, produced, so it's I think it's easier to get uh, brewing equipment, easier to get tanks and things made locally and. Um, right. Right, and so it's a little easier, I think, to grow more gradually. But that's 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 purely speculative. And I think they've learned some tricks too. I know that breweries will build will build out their brew house, uh, and then uh, grow with capacity by bringing in new fermenters, new conditioning tanks, and, and right. Uh, so there's they're probably smarter about growth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is also you know as I said, this is part of the the human capital that you you gain from all these years of experience from from talking to brewers who've gone through this stuff who for working for breweries that are going through this. I think there's just a lot of collective knowledge that's being, uh, being passed around. Yeah. Let's take the next step in our, uh, in our historiography <laughs> of the, uh, of the craft beer industry. So, so where are we going now? Uh Oh, we're going to skunk land. Oh no. <laughs> uh, we're going to one of the most, uh, I think the, I, I would say the, the most important beer in, in America, and I know that I've I've gotten in debates online for years about my theory. <laughs> um, but what I just poured out was the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, which I think is the uh, the first truly modern beer, and that and one that uh, created a template that breweries are still following yep. today. This one is a little skunky. This bottle must have been sitting on the. Uh, yeah, it's a surprise. This is a weird one. I didn't I didn't anticipate when I went to the store. I'd, uh, there's actually it's a 22 ounce bottle of uh, Sierra Nevada Pale. Um, I've never actually bought Sierra Nevada Pale in the 22 ounce bottle, so uh, this one might have sat around for a while. I'm not yeah. sure. That's, that's too bad, but we all know what it tastes like. It's yeah, this is a wonderful one, beer. This is one of the most uh, indelible beers in in America. That even though the green label is indelible, people can spot that for a mile away. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the 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 hallmarks of this beer are uh, uh, fairly clean. Uh, yeast character yep and now the yeast that uh sierra nevada uses which is known as chico or 1056 um <laughs> is used by half the craft breweries in the world yeah. uh they and just they love it because it it gets it's it's kind of lager like it doesn't it doesn't add a lot of character and it gets uh gets the flavors out of the way of the hops and yep. out of the way of the 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 delicate uh it's a fave among homebrewers too as i can attest to yep uh so they started with that um Uses a fair amount of um, caramel malt, which was has been popular uh, through today, although it's declining somewhat. Yeah, you're starting to see more pale. And then, of course, the key is the hopping. It's got all those incredibly rich and 
uh, sprightly flavor and aroma hops that come late in the brewing process that just make it um, such a vivid beer. And I've talked to uh, probably, I don't know, two or three hundred American craft brewers in the last 20 years, and probably a third of them cite this beer as one of their inspirations. It was one of the first beers that they had that really turned their head. And this is still the case. I've been talking to even younger brewers now. This is still one of the first beers they had that really blew their minds. Yeah. And it and still the, has that kind of... And I would further your argument, in fact, and say that it's it's a massively important beer in terms of uh, teaching uh, consumers what craft beer is and can be. Mm. I mean, I've lived a lot of places in the U.S. I lived in Washington, D.C., in Madison, Wisconsin, in Ithaca, New York, uh, Denver, Colorado. And Sierra Nevada Pale was always my go-to beer because it was, it, uh, by, by, these, by this time, it had gotten to these markets and I could find it. Um, and I think that it became popular and widespread quickly. And I think that it's a very approachable beer, but it's quite different. Um, it's certainly e- easy to drink um, and easy to appreciate. Yeah, and it's very different from the Anchor Steam. You know, the Anchor mm-hmm. Steam does have a kind of old American flavor. Yep. The malt is uh, much more prominent. Mm-hmm. The malt character is it does not depend on caramel malt. It's much more um, woody, kind of, uh, I don't know, um, old. It, uh, it has a lager-like presentation in the malt, whereas... Uh, the Sierra Nevada is more caramely and it's much yep. more inflected by those hops. So you you really see the, between these two beers, which are are much closer in, in age than Sierra Nevada is with, with anything being brewed now. Right. I mean, this was a long time ago. Yeah. We're talking, I think, like 1979 or something. It's amazing how well, by the way, Sierra Nevada Pale stands the test of time. Though it's still a delightful beer, and it seems pretty darn modern. It I does. mean, I think people should try it if you if you haven't had one for a while, um, or if you want to test test it out for its beer geek uh, uh, qualities. Just pour it into a glass and hand it to a beer geek. And, and uh, if they don't recognize it, see what they think. They <laughs> probably will recognize it. It's so recognizable. But it seems very modern. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that these are... The, the, this is a big part of the narrative that I think gets lost when everybody focuses. Because a lot of the time when you're... When I'm responding to reporters, it's sort of business press reporters who are reporting on some headline story you know, the billion dollar purchase of Ballast Point or uh, New Belgium looking for looking for uh, uh, investors and things like that. Um, <clears throat> but I think people miss the miss the the bigger narrative in my in my mind, which is this um, sort of gradual well, it started off gradual and becoming quite rapid um, expansion and demand for craft beer. And I think it's exactly these beers that now now consumers have grown up with that they've that it's not Bud that they've switched away from. It's right. always been Sierra Nevada Pale that they've they've identified as beer, right. and that and that gives them the jumping off point to jump into all kinds of different styles. So, yeah, that's an interesting thing. I had not thought about uh, the significance of Sierra Nevada from the consumer perspective, but I think it's a very astute point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one of the first really widespread. That uh, Sam Adams, another the Boston Lager, was another one that sort of got got widespread quickly. Yeah. Um, by the way, speaking of of uh, Sam Adams we haven't talked about it too much but I just wanted to sort of I didn't really know where to throw this in so this is going to be my jumping off point um, it's really interesting the Brewers Association has looked at the uh, craft brewing production by category um, I'm looking at a graphic right now that goes from 2004 to 2014 it just shows you the different segments and um, 
there's four types. There's contract breweries, microbreweries, uh, sorry, contract breweries, brew pubs, microbreweries, and regional breweries. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting to look at. So in the early to mid-2000s, there was a fair amount of beer that was being brewed, uh, being contract brewed. Um, okay. That's actually gone mostly away. There's very little contract uh, brewing going uh, happening now. And contract brewing is uh, like what we were talking about uh, earlier mm-hmm. with uh, what's what's going to happen in Woodenville, where you where a brewery comes to you and says, "Well, you brew our beer at your beer at your brewery, and yeah. then um, you don't have to you don't have to have a brewery. You can have your beer made without having a brewery." That's yeah. Brewing. I referenced this a couple times, but I was um, friends with the guys who started Ithaca Beer uh, while I was living in Ithaca, New York. Um, and their business model actually started, um, they didn't have a brewery to begin with, they just did all, they got it contract brewed in, in Chicago, and then they sold it locally, and once they established a brand and a name, and um, uh, and essentially um, established a, 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 um, a significant and, and uh, reliable demand, mm-hmm. then they invested in, in a physical brewery, and they've expanded now, and are doing, are doing quite well. And that was, of course, the way uh, uh, Jim Cook got started when he started uh, Boston Boston beer and started making Sam Adams. He was a he contract brewed that beer in in Pennsylvania. Right, which is why I mentioned why that was the jumping off point. So, um, so the next category is brew pubs, and brew pubs actually have stayed relatively relatively steady over the last uh, three four years. It's it's gone up. Let to give you some idea. In 2011, there was about uh, 800,000 brew pubs. In 2014, now there's uh, 1.1 million brew pubs. So that's actually been a fairly significant. Um, increase. Those are barrels, not brew pubs. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank you very much. It says brew pubs here, so I'm <laughs> reading off. Uh, capacity of brew pubs has, uh, has gone up. Um, what's uh, the next category is microbreweries, and this is we just looked at that, 115,000 barrels. Yeah, ca- so 15,000 or less, 15, fewer, fewer. 15,000 or fewer, um, and that's been sort of steadily rising over the last few years. But the really big increase is in regional breweries, and this is between fifteen thousand and six million. Six million, which is basically fifteen thousand and up. But these are the well, this is the Brewer Association. So these are the uh, Deschutes, the uh, Sierra, uh, uh, New Belgium, Sierra Nevada, New Belgium. Right. Those those breweries, and this is exactly my narrative, um, and uh, uh, and we'll talk about this in a, in a few minutes. But this is where I think. Um, some of the action is going to play out um, mm-hmm. uh, in in craft beer over the next decade, decaders, or so. Because, as I said, there's just such a strong economies of scale in brewing that um, there's a real strong, really strong incentive to get bigger and bigger. And the bigger you get, the lower the cost per per ounce of beer, and the and the lower price point you can potentially sell it for. And there's going to be a competitive advantage to any brewery that can get big. And so I think it's in the packaging breweries um, where we're going to see more of the uh, what do I want? How do I want to characterize this? Sort of the the um, the effects of a competitive marketplace. Uh-huh. So let me step back for a second and just say that I think that we've run through a honeymoon in craft beer. There's been such a rapid demand, right? And it might still increase. It might still happen for a few more years. It wouldn't surprise me if this keeps going on for a while. But it's really a honeymoon period where there's very little failure mm-hmm. and a lot of success. Yeah, it is. Uh, the Brewers Association keeps statistics on failed breweries or closed breweries, and they're not even all failed. Sometimes people just retire yeah, and close yeah. the brewery down. It's tiny. It's yeah. a tiny little... By the way, running a brewery is a lot of work. It's a lot, <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of manual labor. It's kind of a factory job. So You have to make really terrible beer to 
flame out. I mean, you, it's just really hard to do that yeah. right now. So, so one I of the things that's unusual. Yeah. Right? So one of the things I, you know, <laughs> what people say, well, you know, is there going to be a, you know, is there going to be a, is there a craft beer bubble? Is it going to get horrible? And I, and I sort of think compared to what, I mean, you've been through a honeymoon now, most industries, you have successes and failures and a lot of industries, you have a lot of what we call churn, new mm-hmm. news businesses coming in, old businesses going out. Um, this is what I consider a healthy aspect of a mature market. We have mentioned this before. So this is where I think, um, I think that the, uh, brew pub model is, um, as we've talked about, a bit of a can't miss model if you do it right. I mean, right. obviously you can do a poor job running. It's it's you know it's a restaurant and it's a pub, uh, and it's a little brewery <laughs> brewery attached. So there's a, there's a lot of moving parts you got to get right. But uh, I think there's there's almost unlimited potential for that because these are really neighborhood establishments uh, in my mind um, that can create their own uh, little niche demand. They sell two or three hundred bar- barrels of beer a year, so it's not a big big risk that's right essentially i mean I, I really think these essentially as a restaurant with a sort of you know a little bit of a of twist maybe you know yeah uh so it's going to be these these packaging breweries that um uh that are going to be i think the more risky proposition um but also the bigger reward proposition potentially is uh, uh, as well um but one thing i want to make the, the the sort of third big point i wanted to make before we before we get too far into there is that um Another aspect of beer that makes it interesting to talk about and makes it a little bit different than a lot of products is it's heavy. And so that makes it naturally a local product to begin with. Literally heavy, not like heavy. It's literally heavy. It is hard <laughs> to transport. It's yeah. hard to store. It's hard to transport. Uh, and so it, uh, so being close to or in uh, close to your market, close to your outlets, means a lot. It saves a lot of money. Right. It's really hard to truck Sierra Nevada from California out to Maryland. Right. Um, so, so that's one thing is going on. Obviously, you're seeing other breweries, but that means that breweries are inherently local. I mean, you can you can you can grow beyond that, and you can get to such a scale where you become a really a national product. But for a lot of these breweries, they'll they will start and they will remain a local product. They'll they will. Uh, they will minimize on shipping costs because they're within a local market. They'll become a local brand. Uh, they'll cater to local tastes, and they'll develop relationships with bars and stores and outlets. Um, and that's, I think, a fairly sustainable business model. I think that's one way, in other words, to kind of um, avoid the the the, in, the incessant uh, demands of of scale. Is that you sort of identify and become comfortable with just being a, lo- a, reg- a local or, or a, a small regional brand, right? Um, and there are a lot of unsaturated markets in the U.S. So mm-hmm. you talk about Portland, Denver, San Diego; these kinds of markets are pretty are pretty saturated now. Um, even still, in Portland, there's a new brewery <laughs> opening up like every three weeks. So, right. Um, uh, but there's, I think, there's a lot of un, uh, untapped markets that that that. Um, in other words, there's a lot of growth potential, even for packaging breweries um, uh, in different regions of the U.S. So I do think that there's going to be, um, we're going to reach a time where there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot more failure than we're used to. Yeah, I, I did a blog post and I was looking at those same mm-hmm. uh, Brewers Association numbers and I looked at 10 years ago and and, uh, and for 2014, which was the latest numbers they had, uh, and they had um, the breweries by type. Uh, the uh, regional breweries were only four percent of all breweries were regional breweries mm-hmm. uh, four, ten years ago, and 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 now. Uh, but the big change was 
10 years ago, 71% of all American breweries were brew pubs. And now only 41% are brew pubs. Uh, 10 years ago, 25% were micro, so that is those, those smaller packaging breweries. And now 55% are those one, those are micros, mm. the small packaging breweries. Right. So it does look like there are people who think that uh, there's, there's money to be made in packaging beer, and that's what they're going into. They're not, they're not going to go for the, the small brew pub model, which was popular earlier and now is, is becoming less popular as these other breweries come along. So this does seem like an area, like if you, if you look at areas of risk, it mm-hmm. seems like for that category, maybe the risk is rising. Yeah, I think it is. And I think that's sort of a natural process. I mean, going from almost zero, <laughs> almost zero risk to some risk is sort of is natural. Um, I also think that demands are going to be higher. You're going to have to come out of the gates with really good beer, yeah. a good marketing plan, uh, a good brand identity. Um, there's a lot of, I think that a lot of the success of local craft beer is similar to other artisanal products in which it becomes um, identified as a local product made by local people. And so there's a lot of personality that's involved, I think, in craft beer now. And I think the really successful brewers are those that uh, that um, put the work in, get themselves out there in front of people, sort of uh, tell their story and, um, and create this... Um, yeah, this this story around their beer, around their brand that mm-hmm. people I, that people I de- identify with and relate to, and that's kind of an interesting mix, right? You have yeah. sort of what is a kind of an industrial product, but at the same time, it's a little bit artisanal. You're investing in a business that you hope is going to grow quick, you know, grow reasonably fast. Um, it's a it's well, this is why I enjoy it so much because it's, it's really fascinating to watch. It is a weird thing. The beer is one of those rare products that people have an emotional attachment to, and they always have done. It's mm-hmm. not just a craft brewing thing. I mean, people. When, when when we were coming up and there weren't really craft breweries, people had big connections to whether they were a Pabst man or a Ham's man or a Henry's man. That's right. And that was kind of inconceivable, but they did have that. And so it is a it is a it is a market where uh, it's more inter- it's made more interesting by people's deep connection to the the products that are getting made. Yeah. Okay, so let's turn to the last beer and that gives us the last bit of the narrative. And so what I chose for the last beer um, was the uh, 10 Barrel Apocalypse IPA. And the reason I did this is because 10 Barrel um, has made national news by being one of the breweries that was acquired by the AB InBev uh, empire. Um, it was big news locally because 10 Barrel is not actually uh, particularly old or particularly big, um, nope. but they were sort of a hot up-and-coming brewery. And um, they sold to the Bud folks... And that made a lot of local folks a little bit unhappy. I don't know if it's if that unhappiness is really translated into lower sales. My suspect, suspicion that not much. No. Maybe among the really deep, deep in the weeds beer geeks. Yeah. Um, but so this is what's been happening. We've been seeing a lot of new acquisitions, either by big established breweries or by um, other uh, investment firms. Oh, sorry, I'm taking a nice big whiff. So this is a thoroughly modern IPA, and it's and it's uh, it, it is it is hard to imagine. Uh, te- we go back to our ten year window. Uh-huh. Ten years ago, um, it would have been hard to imagine Budweiser, Anheuser Busch, mm-hmm. buying a small brewery in Bend for some tens of millions of dollars that they paid for for ten barrel. So that so that we have definitely seen this perception in value. What what uh, the large uh, beer companies in the United States now 
see as value in, in craft beer yeah. has really shifted. That was not the case 10 years ago. And so I'm going to use kind of a, what we call a revealed preference argument about this, about why this is a sign that there isn't a craft beer bubble rather than the sign that there is. Because these are big co corporations with lots of very smart people crunching the numbers, looking at market trends, and clearly deciding that there is a big future in craft beer and that instead of doubling down on Bud by inv inventing yet another new bottle that has a twisty neck and a <laughs> you know, diamond pattern or something, that uh, maybe they better start investing in craft beer. Yeah. Uh, and other different companies have different uh, strategies. Uh, uh, Anheuser-Busch seems to uh, clearly have identified um, uh, a strategy of acquiring local breweries, local and regional breweries, maybe gro growing them into regional breweries, but I don't think, um, for the most part, they're imagining that these will all become national brands. Right. I imagine that what they're going to have is an archipelago of these uh, local and regional uh, brands um, that will become a big part of their brewing portfolio, and probably they're imagining a ever-growing, at least for the <laughs> at least for the short to medium term, a uh, a big growing part of their portfolio as the other part shrinks. Right. I think that's it has to be, and and I for those to get back to the bubble thing, I think we can't know, uh, but we can know what people think. And mm -hmm. if you look at the investment that these big beer companies are making. They probably wouldn't be making these big investments if craft brewing, if they expected craft brewing to top out right yep. where it is. Exactly. They exactly. would. They would not be paying the, this much money. They might be picking them up here and there for odd, you know, like fire sales. They might pick up a, a brand as a fire sale, but they're spending way big premiums on these breweries, yep. uh, far in excess of what the brewery is actually worth now. Yep. So they're thinking about what the brewery is going to be worth in the future, and I think that's that's and, right. And this is after after maybe a decade of. I don't know, you want to call it denial, but certainly resistance. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking that, yes, this fad is going to go away. We'll just, you know, we'll just come up with a new bottle and keep people focused on Bud and don't worry about it. Right. Um, I think this is an, an admission that craft beer is here to say that we've passed the tipping point, to use your, uh, your parlance, and that this is probably the wise investment for the future. Yeah, so here we are drinking a... Uh an, an Anheuser-Busch product. <laughs> and, uh, I have to think about it. By the way, there's no mention of this on the bottle, just so you know. Right. Of course not. And it says on the on the bottle, made in Oregon, yep. um, which it is. It's brewed, or brewed in Oregon. Brewed which bottle totally, by 10 bottle room. It is totally true. And I think, uh, you know, that is that is an important, another important as, uh, effect of uh, Budweiser's thinking, mm -hmm. uh, ABI's thinking, is that um, it is a local brewery. It's it's owned by an international conglomerate, but you can actually go down to the brewery and meet the brewer here. There's one in Portland. There's one in Bend. Yep. Um, so it is it is brewed. It is actually brewed in, in Oregon. Whatever else you might want to say about it, um, the the question of local is certainly up for debate. But where it's brewed is not up for debate. It's brewed right here. Yeah. And and in terms of of our topic for today, I think that that's just a just a sign that 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 craft beer is not in a bubble. In fact, is is uh is looking good for the future but i think we've we've uh gone about as far as we can down this this road hopefully um so we would so let's let's summarize it you would say that uh there is whatever we want to call uh a bubble you don't you don't expect you think that there is a, a lot of growth in the market but you're not expecting um some kind of cataclysm down the road yeah i don't think there'll be a craft beer bust is how right. i would prefer to call it uh anytime soon but there could be some tightening of the market. There could be 
we could start to see uh, brewery failures increase. Yeah, and it's not just because – and by the way, I'm not saying that because I think that demand is going to suddenly stop growing necessarily. It could still be growing, but just the demands of, of mid-sized packaging breweries is to mm-hmm. keep getting bigger and bigger. And you know, uh, it's going to, I think, naturally happen that the, some are going to succeed and some are going to fail. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's tough business. It's hard to run a business. Uh, and so I think that, that we will see some failure, but I don't think that's going to be indicative of any kind of bust. Yeah, that it seems like failures are common in markets that we don't think are collapsing, but, mm-hmm. but still breweries are still uh, businesses fail. Yeah, uh, and so I would say uh, focus on the growth in demand. Um, uh, wait until <laughs> wait until that shows any times of slowing before you start growing. Uh, focus on brewing capacity. Don't get overwhelmed by the numbers of new breweries, but think about how much extra excess capacity is being created relative to uh, the growth in in demand capacity uh, not brewing numbers capacity brewing numbers. not not brewing mother uh remember that breweries are local and there's still lots of places in the u.s uh that have lots of room for new breweries and growth in breweries um and remember that a lot of these new brewers are uh well schooled and well trained and have a good templates to uh um to use when they're starting their new breweries and so you're seeing breweries that are getting started by very that are very smart and sophisticated and they're growing brewing good beer with good business plans. Yeah, and I can really emphasize that last bit. When I was traveling around for the Beer Bible, uh, when I was at in different cities, I was mainly seeking out new breweries because the ones I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. And some of the best breweries that I visited on my tour had been open less than a couple of years. And they were making, you know, world-class beer, like the, as, the, as good a beer as you'll find anywhere. And, yep. and oftentimes uh, the brewer was, you know, under 30 years old and, and uh, they were knew how to make good beer. So I think for a number of reasons, that's very different than uh, the, the Sierra Nevada era or certainly the Fritz yeah, Maytag era. Yeah, I think you're seeing a whole generation now of, of new young brewers who have been, who have gone through the vocational training right. <laughs> who have, uh, or the professional training from a, uh, from university right. um, and uh, are hitting the round running, ready to go. So I think that the future, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite the opposite. I think the future of craft beer is incredibly bright, and I think uh, it's a really exciting time to be a craft beer enthusiast. All right. Well, shall we move on to uh, our, our final two segments? Let and, us. Uh, Let us away. Get people back to their lives. Uh, although, how, how could life be sweeter than listening to us? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our, uh, let's, the, the mailbag... Um, Again, I want to emphasize the underscore beer acts at yahoo.com. Send me emails there. Um, mm-hmm. We're we're trying to get the mailbag going, and I mainly am uh, finding comments through my, the Facebook page. But I would love to hear people who uh, listen to this um, send us your reflections. And you can just give us opinion, and we'd be happy to talk just to give your opinion if you disagree with us, especially if you disagree with us. That would be cool. Yeah, we don't have any cranks yet. Come on. Yeah, we, we're not serious until we have our trolls. Troll <laughs> That's us. right. Come on, trolls. Let's, let's go. Yeah, and if you have suggestions for upcoming podcast uh, topics, uh, anything. Anything. Let us know. Uh, but for the moment, we have uh, an interesting uh, question that I think maybe you can talk to. Uh, Mark Bunster and Zach Rotello uh, asked questions about uh, beer festivals and – Mark sort of got things rolling by set, by asking, and I think this is really, the answer is it's really an Oregon law. Um, why aren't volunteers allowed to taste the beer that they serve? Uh, when you go to a brewer, brewing festival, the server never knows what the beer tastes like. So you ask what it's like, and he has no. It's, it's an Oregon law thing. It's no LCC thing. Um, but then Zach asked, and I think this is very interesting, and I'd like your thoughts on this. By the way, I just, just as a... Pr- I, I, 
uh, apropos to that, uh, it's also true among uh, people who work in, 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 in pubs and like the owners of pubs. So you'll talk to people who, who can't drink their beer during the day ah. uh, because they're not allowed to, this is like brew pubs, right? Packaging brew, I think it's different, but, uh, and then have to wait until after they close in order to legally actually sample the wear. So this Though is, they, there could be training for that. And if you work in a brewery, you assume they're tra- doing some training. Yes, and if you were, if it, I don't, I don't think there's anything that would prohibit a, a a festival organizer to host his his pours, uh, his or her pours a day, you know, a day or two in advance. And well, this is perfect segue because oh, okay. Zach asks, given that this is the situation, what is in it for breweries to send their beer to a festival since the intermediate intermediary doesn't know anything about their beer? So why would a brewery send a beer to a festival? I think that's a great question. That's interesting. Uh, let, let, me, let me rephrase the question. Would it, would it be more enticing for brewers if you said, look, I'm going to have a festival where I've got servers. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, have them sample the beer ahead of time so they know, and I'm going to train them to talk about your beer. Yeah. It seems like that would, if I were a brewing, brewery It seems like that would be a winning, a winning proposition on both sides. I think yeah. people would enjoy that festival more, and brewers would be more excited about sending their beer. Yeah, I think it would. I mean, uh, the festival we're most uh, used to here is the Oregon Brewers Festival, which is such just a huge event that brewers want to be a part of it anyway. Right. Because you just get your beer out there, you get your name out there, um, and it's kind of a big deal. But you're talking about more sort of boutique or, um, I don't know if that's the right word, (laughs) boutique boutique festival. Specialty. Uh, A specialty festival, yeah. Yeah. you definitely think that that's. I mean, we have some pretty cool specialty festivals, like the Fruit Beer Fest is is one that comes to mind. <laughs> oh, hey, you get the glass. We have, we have a we glass. We pour the ten barrel. We pour the ten barrel beer into the Portland Fruit Beer Festival. This is one where it seems to make all kinds of sense to have the servers uh, aware of what they're serving and be able to talk about it. Yeah, especially because they're one-off beers and and. On the other hand, remember, at least it's true locally, that these are mostly volunteers. Right. Uh, and um, they're volunteering their time and to ask them to come a day ahead. Although if you've offered them free beer, it's yeah. may, maybe not so hard. But <laughs> I think that might be. Uh, that's why they do the volunteering. But, anyway. but if you want to train them, you wanted them to spend a couple hours ahead of time, then um, that makes the, the the bargain that they've struck in order to volunteer for your festival a little bit a little bit more costly. So, Indeed. Uh, I This is a, a topic that we go in deeply, but I'll just touch on it. Briefly, Ryan Sharp uh, asked about judging because I was judging at a a, uh, a fest a, a thing for the Oregon Beer Awards over last weekend, uh-huh. and he wanted to know how does judging differ uh, from what what do you what, what's the process look like? Yeah, how does it differ from when you're just in a pub drinking a beer? That's an excellent question. And is, I, I would I would very much like to hear your answer. It is an excellent question. I wish I had a little bit more time to devote to it. Maybe we'll come back to that. Yeah, this actually is good a good thing to save for the future as well but but what's your first take my first take is that um in most festival or in most judging uh competitions style is king and Mm -hmm. style will really direct you to evaluate the beer based on specific benchmarks that the brewery is supposed to hit in terms of uh the in the expression of the ingredients the strength of the beer the color of the beer um all these things so when you taste a beer in a pub, like when we pour out a uh, a beer that's called an IPA and mm-hmm. it tastes more like a pale ale, mm-hmm. uh, we don't actually knock it down. If it's a great beer, we think, oh, it's a great beer. I wouldn't call it an IPA, but it's still a great beer. Right. And we move along, and we may drink that beer a lot. In a fest- in a judging comp- uh, competition, you would immediately 
knock that give through. it a ding you give it a big Not ding close enough to style yeah and you and we and in this over the weekend that we had a couple of beers that had been entered in the wrong category mm-hmm. and, and so they were, they were knocked out um the i will say the oregon beer awards if anybody is interested in those uh they will be announced in february uh the organizers who included willamette weeks uh martin sismar uh the new schools ezra johnson greeno and uh ben edmonds at the brewer at the uh at Breakside, mm-hmm. have put together a really wonderful judging, I think. It's it's very different from the GABF. There's only 12 categories of beer. Uh-huh. They were really trying to prize uh, expressiveness, harmoniousness, uh, sub- the subjective qualities about what we like beer right. over this kind of hidebound adherence to style, right. okay. which I think is, yeah. we don't, I think, especially in Oregon, we just are not that interested in, in your ability to... Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see the results from a judging that just says, what's a great beer? What, 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 what tasted fantastic? Yeah, we had very general rather categories. than you know, what is the best expression of the yeah American pale? <laughs> and you and you want to have categories that are narrow enough so that you can at least compare sure. one beer to another. Yeah, but we you know we had like they have a whole category for dark ale. So any any kind of uh, nice. porter or stout is yeah. all together and 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 like that. So it was it was quite interesting and it actually was a real challenge for the judges because we didn't have the style guidelines. Style guidelines actually allow you to kind of you know, feel your way around it, and you can. It gives you uh, the guidelines. So when you're into the subjective side, it's a little bit more challenging, but I think more rewarding. Okay, so. but, what, but real quickly, what about just the nuts and bolts? You ah uh, yeah, you so pour the, out a beer. So it's um, you look at the you get a flight of beers. Mm-hmm. They're all judged blind, and uh, but I mean is um uh, I see where you're going with this, but I'm going to interject here just a yeah. second because I'm thinking about I I have a beer put in front of me in a pub versus I'm thinking seriously about judging this beer mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it's the same thing you want to look at the color and the presentation of the beer the head right. the color the bead perhaps yep, uh, all those things then you take it to the nose yep take a big breath try to get all of the the aroma characteristics of the beer yep and then what how do and, you how do you drink and then you uh big gulp a small sip you swirl it do you yeah, spit it out. <laughs> I think everybody will swirl it. Um, that's my technique uh, because when you leave it in your mouth, it'll warm the beer up. Mm-hmm. Um, it will allow the retro nasal uh, aromas to go up the back of your your mouth, and mm-hmm. when you uh, get those aromas going and you swallow the beer at the same time, mm-hmm. that creates the f- perception of flavor. Okay. So uh, a lot of what you're uh, evaluating comes as an alchemy between aroma and 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 taste. The mm-hmm. stuff that hits your taste buds. Right. Uh, it allow, it also allows you to uh, evaluate viscosity, carbonation, um, things like that. You're looking for off flavors, so mm-hmm. uh, you know if it's got diacetyl or yeah. it's got whatever. So that's a big difference because in the pub, hopefully you don't notice. I mean, I wouldn't go looking for anything wrong with a beer in a pub. I'm just hoping that I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah, so. it's really true, and uh, I think it it's actually there's a there's a <laughs> There's a demystification that happens when you judge a beer and you break it down its constituents parts that I think everyone feels like the beers are you're more wowed in a pub. There's something about the orientation. You want to like a beer in a pub. Yeah, exactly. But when you're judging a beer, you're very judging. Yeah, you're looking for the flaws. Yeah. Right? Looking, yeah. <laughs> so I have one other question that's uh, that's like this and we can move on. But, you know, I'll sit in a pub with a 16-ounce pour of a beer yeah. And the first few sips yeah. are really different than the last few sips. Yeah. And obviously, in a big judging, you're not going to be sitting there sitting over a 16-ounce pour of a beer for half an hour. That's exactly right. And I, I think this is a, a, a critical point. As, as a person who writes about beer, 
I no longer get tasters when I go to a pub. Mm. I, I only buy pints, and it means that I can't drink anywhere near as many of the beers that a, a brewery brews. Right. But I, f- I feel the same way that you do, that you need to sit with an entire 16-ounce pour of a beer and see how it evolves, see how it how it tastes uh, on the, the middle pour and the last pour yeah. or the last sip. Um, wearability is really important. And maybe all beers are not going to be like that. You know, if you're talking about Imperial Stouts, it's slightly different. But but 95% of the beers should should be satisfying all the way through. And you can't judge that in a judging competition. So I totally yeah. agree. Okay, I'm going to troll our listeners because I'm going to say that um, this is one of the reasons why I don't personally like the super face-melting bitterness of like San Diego, what I consider sort of San Diego style IPAs, because the first few sips can be quite enjoyable. But by the time I'm halfway through the pint or at the end of the pint, I have no taste buds left. I just don't, I'm not even really experiencing the beer anymore. That's my, that's my little thing. So, so send a comment and tell me why I'm yeah, Pull so it. San Diego, he's calling <laughs> yeah, you out. I'm calling you out. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Wait, if we maybe we'll start trolling the audience. That's right. They yeah. don't troll us, so somebody's going to start trolling somebody. By the way, speaking of audience, this is, this is completely out of the blue, but um, I just want to shout out to everyone in Johannesburg, South Africa, because it turns out if you've looked at our stats, we're really big in, in Johannesburg. In fact, it's like the the third biggest metro area in which people listen to our pods. So wow. I have no idea why, but if you're out there listening to Johannesburg. Please, please send me an email. Yeah, that's very cool. Send us, get it, get in touch. Uh, all right, last last segment is our uh, our beer sherpa, the recommendations of the week. Uh, what do you have for us, Jeff? <laughs> we didn't talk about this. No, I got nothing. Didn't. Didn't. I, I didn't think about this. Oh, that's I was going to punt on this too. I was going to I was going to recommend Sierra Nevada Pale because we had talked about it and uh, and I was sure there. Okay, so let's let's go ahead and recommend the two that we've that we've tried today. So if you've never had Sierra Nevada Pale. Uh, hard to imagine or if you haven't had in a while which is quite likely yeah. uh uh go 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 get a sierra nevada and compare it to the kinds of beers now and um look for those those lineages that yeah look exist. For the DNA. uh sierra nevada pale i think still remains a wonderful beer and anchor steam if you're like me this is the first time i've tried anchor steam in probably 15 years oh wow um it's been a really long time since i've had anchor steam and it is a really interesting beer as i'm rediscovering right now it is an interesting beer it's always surprising i was at the brewery last year so i did get to test Uh, it yeah uh so let's 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 have those be our two recommendations for the week go dig into the history of american craft beer Yeah. yeah go get an anchor steam go get a sierra nevada pale and let us know what you think that's right all right. Well, thanks for listening to the podcast. That wraps us up for today. Uh, as always, please, please, please be in touch. Jeff blogs at Beervana and all about beer. He tweets at at Beervana, and you can be in touch with him and therefore us at the underscore beer acts at yahoo.com or visit the Beervana blog Facebook page. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We would indeed. And that's Patrick Emerson over there. And he blogs at Beeronomics mm-hmm. and tweets at at Beeronomics. Um, and if you go... Uh, you'll probably find more of his activity on, on Twitter. And he does actually post. You tweet quite often, so yeah, look, I, look I, for him on Twitter. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm tweeting more often than I'm, than I'm posting these days. But <laughs> but, uh, but I, every, every once in a while. All okay, right. uh, thanks for listening, Jeff. Uh, let's go out with a... Got to get some more of this beer in there. All right, which, which one do you want? Uh, I'll, take the, I'll take the Anchor Steam. All right, I'll go Sierra Nevada. Okay, cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.